Hello, and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder and designer of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Each episode, we take you to meet someone whose work, study, creation, or simply life ethos inspires the world of our collections. We invite you to come along on this journey as we meet the makers and thinkers whose contributions have shaped the handmade jewellery we create and the lives we live while wearing it. Kirsty Clements has presided over the most glamorous corners of the Australian fashion industry throughout her very long career. At one point in time, her role took her from clubbing with supermodels and Guns N' Roses in Paris, to high tea with Estee Lauder at the Plaza New York, to travels alongside Armani in Shanghai. Despite these stylish credentials, she finds that much of her creative and professional inspiration has been drawn from fine art, poetry, music, film and travel. Really, fashion's become the part of the entertainment industry. It's not what it was in the 1950s, holding up the little cards in the Paris salons. It's very much part of entertainment now. As Vogue Australia's former editor-in-chief, a memoirist and novelist, Clements has reached stratospheric heights, assisted in part for a fabulous collection of shoes. She once spent $400 on Valentino rubber flip-flops. She's also had to brave the seas of the fickle fashion world while relocating to Paris and back, raising twin boys and being let go of unceremoniously from Vogue. Dauntlessly, through it all, she's maintained a wry sense of humour and a position as a highly sought-after fashion industry consultant. Hi, Kirsty. It's great to see you. Hello, Olivia. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. No worries. Let's talk about part of your early life because mm-hmm. that's always interesting to people. So you spent a lot of time in the care of your grandmother mm-hmm. as a young child and you've described her as quite a tough lady, scotch drinking and chain smoking, yeah. which conjures quite the image. Yes. Um, how did the women in your family dress and carry themselves? And do you think that sort of influenced your own sense of style? Yes, my mother was married several times and my father died when I was young, when I was five and then there was a stepfather and and then he left and so she was a working mother for a lot of the time, a working Mm. single mother sometimes. And so my grandmother moved in and helped to raise myself and my old brother and she was yeah, Scottish, um, her name was Violet, and she did drink a bottle of scotch a day and she did smoke. A bottle? Almost a bottle, yeah, about three quarters of a bottle of scotch. And smoked a packet of cigarettes a day, but she was really sweet. We'd just kind of play patience and make sandwiches and make the dinner and everything. But she was quite stoic. And I think I watched all the, the women in my my family, you know, either things happen with men, they either left or they passed away or what have you. And the women always had to sort of get on with it and roll up their sleeves and, and get out there and work, you know, and it was a sort of normal middle-class upbringing. And my mother and my aunt were very glamorous, especially my auntie Faye, and she'd been a showgirl in the 50s and um, a model in the 60s, and they were always impeccably made up. So no matter what happened, you know, they would always have beautiful makeup on their hair. They were blonde, unlike me. They'd have their nails done. They didn't have a lot of money, but they looked super glam. And it was the kind of that kind of idea of pour a glass of wine, put your lipstick on and get on with it, you know, that... I, mm. I think I got from that part of the family. They did like to have fun and they liked to party and I probably got my love of makeup from that. And my mum, I guess, was a little bit camp. She used to wear like leopard skin peignoirs and 
you know, marabou mules wow. and all that stuff, false eyelashes, but I, lo- I love all that stuff and still do. So it, they were a big um, influence on me. That's awesome. Also, in terms of your own career, you've been such a strong influence in the fashion industry. So a lot of your sense of style came from them by the sounds of it. Well, yes. And my mum loved fashion. They loved shoes and they loved makeup and they loved handbags. My cousin and I used to really love vintage and we used to go to all the car boot sales and all the salvos and the vinnies and everything. You know, this is in the 70s, late 70s. And I always loved vintage clothing and had a, you know, the mohair sweaters and the 50s skirts and the stilettos and the, the paste jewellery, et cetera. And until we kind of went a bit more punk and a bit more Shiseido number one foundation, which is like matte white and wow. you know, red lipstick and black eye- eyeshadow and leather ja- ripped leather jackets and what have you. But I lived in the Shire and I, I did not like the Shire. It was not my vibe. That kind of surfy vibe was not the way either I looked or what I wanted to do. And I moved into the city. I moved into to Darlinghurst when I was 16 and was hanging around with bands and things like that. And that's when I really started to embrace that punk rock and roll kind of thing and then going to a lot of film festivals and seeing a lot of art and just reading a lot of books and I just I really soaked up that mm. idea of popular culture. So I wouldn't necessarily say I love fashion. It's part it's part of all of that, you know, and it yeah. was very much part of that when I was going, you couldn't just go, there weren't Zara's and sports, you, know, you, you couldn't even get a pair of black jeans. You had to dye them yourself and run them in skinny and all that sort of stuff, shop yeah. at vintage, shop at disposal stores. So mm. it was very inventive and creative. Yeah, it's like original fashion yeah. rather than fashion how we see it now, like where it references things, you know? Completely. I mean, you would never have said to somebody, what label is that? Or what, you know, we didn't have any money, but it was the way people put things together and the guys wore makeup and nail polish and earring. I love all that. Always have, always will. So that was probably the biggest influence on me was moving into the city. And then I I went over to London where it tipped into that kind of new romantic period you know, with the pirate blouses and things and lived in London when I was 18 for a couple of years. And I went to Paris and picked up on Rome, picked up on that kind of Fiorucci style because I always loved the 50s. So I was very influenced by everything, but not by labels, never by labels. So I find that a little bit tedious when someone's head to toe in labels or then label dropping or something. I think it's, you know, it's not where I come from. Yeah. It's one dimensional, isn't Mm. it? So, yeah, obviously back to music and art in the 70s and 80s, you were embedded in the punk and post-punk music scene. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of part of a subcultural underground mm. in a way. So how did this shape your ideas about belonging and being an insider versus an outsider in the culture industry? I knew that I wanted to get out of the Shire. I knew that that was a very stifling culture for me. You know, that shy, mm. that surfy culture was incredibly misogynistic and I knew I wanted to escape that sort of tedium of the suburbs and it wasn't necessarily that I needed a sense of belonging but I definitely knew where I needed to escape from. Yeah. Um, And then finding these like-minded people, a couple of my girlfriends also moved out from the Shire, but then finding these like-minded people and but it was all driven through music and going to gigs and there was a really healthy venue culture that isn't doesn't exist anymore. Every pub had a punk band in the corner or a rockabilly band or whatever. And I suppose I educated myself just because it was something that I was interested in. And it wasn't, to be honest, until I got to Vogue and Vogue was sort of had a certain set of women who worked there that were very North Shore and very, had beautiful taste. But I realised I knew different stuff. 
I, mm. they, they didn't live in the world that I did. They didn't have, hadn't done the things that I had. They knew a lot about art and food and decoration. I had more of a deep dive into that alternative culture, which I think was an important thing to take to Vogue. You, you need to be able to yeah. understand layers and, and I think music and art and sport and whatnot. I don't like sport, but um, you need to know about the, you know, fashion that might be coming from sports, say with the ballers or whatever. But you'd need a broad understanding of things. And I, I teach fashion journalism now. And I always say to the students, you know, you've got to be interested in more than fashion because it's really fashion's become the part of the entertainment industry. It's not what it was in the 1950s, holding up the little cards in the Paris salons. It's very much part of entertainment now. My broad perspective just came from general curiosity and I get bored really easily. Yeah, mm. I feel that I get bored really easily too. <laughs> I think also you brought, you would have brought things to Australia that your time overseas would have given you. That's what I've found anyway, even though, you know, I've got my own brand, I still feel that the references I make are quite foreign here. Yes. Well, sometimes you don't know until you've gone. So it's, it's in retrospect that you, you can't be the big fish in a small pond. You know, that's very limiting. It's much mm. better to go overseas and, and to you know, experience what there is out there in the world. I think Australians can get very self-satisfied sometimes, you know, about this country in the world. So, oh, no, 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 there is a lot out there. There's a lot going on. A lot. (laughs) You know, so I moved to Paris because I fell in love, but I'm so glad that I spent that time there because I got to just meet the most incredible people. I could interview, you know, noses of famous perfume houses, go to the couture shows, you know, not just the radio, but couture, like really do a deep dive into that sort of high end of the fashion world. And then, of course, you had access to go wherever you could be flying to Copenhagen one morning or Milan the next or London. It was it was fantastic. And I think it was good stuff to have under my belt when I came back and then started editing Vogue. How long did you edit Vogue for? 13 years. It's a long time. Mm, yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's a very specific culture in Australia, the fashion industry, so I can imagine it would be yes. quite a lot. Yes. To deal with for an extended period of time. Yes. Have you got any specific references or film or literature movements that you found have really stuck with you from your travel days or early fashion days? I've always been a really big fan of sort of French realism, you know, like Balzac and, you know, Madame Bovary. We always think it's, like, it's the ultimate Vogue book because she's never satisfied. She always wants what's the most glittering dance that's on, you know, and that she wants yeah. more out of life. I very highly identify with Emma Bovary, apart from throwing myself under a train, but <laughs> strictly one of us isn't gorgeous when she gets all that, you know, poison on dust on her black dress. But I think... I don't know that I could be specific about one because every time you sit and see a ready-to-wear show and a piece of music starts or the hair makers in particular, the castings in a particular way, it is going to throw you into things like whether it's, you know, Renaissance or Bauhaus or punk or the fashion world has so many references and takes you on so many rides um, that Mm. you're always learning and discovering. So I think that's the part people probably didn't understand that, you know, why, especially management, why, why you needed to go and see fashion shows in Paris in person to understand it. But, you know, to, to see something like John Galliano's Madame Butterfly or something to experience, to see the chrysalid painting on the nail polish mm. that they'd done and, the, yeah. you know, the Stephen Jones hair pieces and things, the, the Chanel shows at the Ritz that just transported you into a different time and a different place. 
it's all about beauty. All of those, you know, fashion is good fashion, high fashion is all about those worlds colliding and taking those references. Look at Dries van Noten and all of his beautiful references from those yeah. 30s colours painting and so that's what keeps you interested. The referencing. I think that's something that often is missed now. There's different ways of communicating fashion now. People are not really necessarily looking at the old-time critics who had those layers of references that they were putting forward, you know, where they would talk to Mutu Prada or they would talk to Carl or whoever it was mm. that they were they were covering. And I think there is now it's more showmanship and it's more, you know, the influences have, have got a different take on it. I'm not criticising that. I think it can all coexist. It has to coexist. TikTok's taken over pretty much. Yeah, I um, know. And something else will be next. And, you know, there's room for all of it. But I know by talking to the kids at college, we were writing the other day and I asked them to write in four different styles. We were killing ourselves laughing because you could write in a very tony, you know, fashion critic style and then you could do it as a first-person influence. Like, hi, guys, I am obsessed with this jacket. And we were all laughing because it was all the same. We were all, they were all writing the same words. And then how do you do it? How do you conceptualise something that would be cute in a 20-second video? So this is the whole change in fashion about how we're putting forward ideas now. And it's, it's, it's actually super interesting. Yeah, mediums to communicate. Mm. The, you know, all the different platforms. Mm. It's quite overwhelming. Yeah, I, I, it is overwhelming. I think people get fatigued. You've got to find the people whose opinions you care about in amongst that maelstrom. But I just, I do think it's interesting to see how people reinvent the messaging. But a lot's getting lost in the translation because when I looked at the Met Ball, you know, which was American design and I, I just really didn't understand what a lot of people were wearing there. <laughs> I like, yeah, I found that was quite, I mean, I was like, is this just because I've been in lockdown that I find this very hard to understand. Yeah, a lot to of wrap my head around that one too. But it was just, it was a, it's a whole new breed of influencer and a whole new breed of, you know, YouTube star that's actually got the numbers and are having fun. And that's what it's supposed to be all about anyway, I guess. Yeah. There was a lot of, I think, negative pushback about the Met because of the political commentary people were making that was seen as quite hypocritical. I don't know if you followed that. In terms of the rich dress, the um, tax yeah. the rich? Yeah. yeah. Yes, but it is a fundraiser, I suppose. It is a fundraiser for the Costume Institute and, and that, uh-huh. that ball has raised millions. But, yeah, on the other hand, it is there for hits and clicks, but that's capitalism. It is. definitely <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it's a, strange, it's a strange world. Yeah. I want to talk about living in Paris because obviously I lived there for six and a half years but in a very different time. So can you tell us a little bit about living in Paris in the 1990s? Mm. My husband worked at this club called the Casbah, which was like the hottest place to go. Like, you know, every night when you went there, there would be Philippe Stark and Michael Hutchins and Bono and, you know, and it was that real, the Parisians embracing Arab culture in this sort of Casbah environment. It was very, very cool. And I lived this crazy nightclub world where like he would get home at 6am or 5am and then we'd go out and have steak and chips at this club called Babylon Leal with all the jazz musicians at like 8am in the morning, you know, people eating steak and chips and smoke. It was all crazy turnabout. And it was just mad. We slept all day and they just went out all night. And the fashion, when I think about it, then I was channeling this kind of 40s, I used to wear floral casherelle dresses, fishnet stockings and black Robert Clergeret wedges. And so my hair in combs and red lipstick. It was a real sort of 1940s vibe. Yeah, it was amazing. And I was stringing for Vogue. So as I said to you before, I interviewed Tom Ford one day, Gianfranco Ferre the next. 
Jacques Polish, The Nose of Chanel the day after that, went to the Ritz and saw the Couture Chanel show. All of this stuff could be happening in a week. Also, I was learning the language. I wasn't fluent. So I just spent a lot of time on my own, to be honest, just walking the streets and in my own head because, you know, the chatter, if you, can't, if you don't speak the language, the, the white noise disappears and that you you kind of take a lot in. And I could tell you could drop me in any arrondissement in Paris and I can tell you where I'm find you work my back to somewhere because I just walked every lane and every alley and every mm. I just love it's something I don't really do in Australia it would be impossible no it'd be impossible there's nothing to look at um but where <laughs> <laughs> so my husband's Algerian and so I spend a lot of time in that also out in the block zones in that sort of French Arab like cliche yeah out there. Yeah, yeah like you know that movie La Haine you know that sort yeah. of So it wasn't all cobblestones and morning teas, you know, and, and champagne for me. I also saw that other side of Paris, which I found really intriguing. And I really was just getting a grip on it. I had my children there as well, um, my twins. And I was just sort of getting a grip on it. I'd been there for about six years. And then I got offered to go back and deputy at Vogue. And I kind of was one of those, I better not say no to this opportunities, you know. So yeah. we went back. But I definitely had, that was a wild ride in, in the 90s in Paris. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you could go back and live in Paris? I feel very, very comfortable there. Yeah. Yeah. I do. But I've been out for 20 years now and I'm sure it's changed a lot, but I do feel very comfortable there. So I think mm. I could. Yeah, I do. I would like to spend some more time there. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> I could live there again. Yeah, I could. I could yeah, actually, I could definitely live there again. Yeah. <laughs> my, my son said a funny thing to me once. We went over and the boys were out. 13 or 14, and Joe said to me, you look really comfortable in Paris. And I said, yeah, I, I am, darling. And he goes, even your hair looks good here. <laughs> <laughs> My hair's better in Europe for something about the, the water. Yeah, like, like, your, hair, your, hair, your haircut looks better here. <laughs> I like that your 13-year-old son said that to you. It was funny. But, yeah, I do miss it. I know, I understand. I think also Istanbul for me is mm. one, the place where I could easily live again. Of course. Yeah, yeah, I've only been twice, but the last time I was there, I just absolutely soaked it up and loved it. I know. I see all those references in your jewellery. I mean, it's incredible. How could you not love I know, somewhere like Istanbul? Yeah. So do you feel like when you were in Paris, you had the, okay, I feel like I know what I want to do with my career moment? Or has it always just been an unfolding discovery? Yeah. No, yes, it unfolded, to be honest. You know, I, threw, I had been at Vogue for 10 years and then decided I'll go to Paris for love kind of thing. And I threw it in and then they ended up saying, well, you can be a, a correspondent, you know, on retainer. And then I got offered the deputy position. I said no. Then they offered it to me again. I thought I'd better go back. So I kind of just went with it. And, mm. and I, when I was finally offered the job of editor, I, th I really did think, well, I can do it. I know it. I've done every job here. I've done the, you know, the receptionist job. I've been an assistant. I've been a beauty editor. I've been in the promotion. So I think that would make me a good boss because I do know what it is, what the rest of the team does. Yeah. You know, and I do know, I understand. I've been in Paris. I, I get the other side. And I do understand the business. So, but no, I wasn't really ambitious to do it. And then I think I just, I got it and thought, oh, this is great. Yes. And then rolled with that for that, you know, for the next 13 years. So I was with Vogue for a total of 27 years. But I knew when I started the place, I just thought, oh, what a wonderful world. This because, you know, VOGUE is going to open me to. You have to work yeah. very hard. Yeah. And it's very tough when you're at the editor, but it does open incredible doors. You know, it's, um, mm. 
I guess a once in a lifetime opportunity, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's incredible. Twenty seven years and to have also that across continents and mm. different roles is it's quite unusual. Mm. Yes, I suppose it is really because I just because I had that hiatus of um you know of stopping and going to Paris and having the babies and then and then resuming it, which was good. I, I had to spend a little bit of time at Harper's Bazaar too, but that was what I loved to do. And you know, when I finished with Vogue, I had to sort of say to myself after that, well, what what do you want to do now? What is it that you're good at? And I really I decided I just like to write. That is really what I, you know makes me happy, and that's mm. what I solely do now, really. I've dabbled in other businesses, but I really, my passion is to write and to observe. Do you think you'll continue writing as you go down your path of career and exploration? Oh, hopefully more. Hopefully more. Yeah. 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 I don't, I'm not interested in corporate life anymore. I don't. No, it's definitely something that will take its toll after a while. I can't believe I got through it. Yeah. So you obviously shepherded Vogue into the digital era, launching vogue.com.au website in 2000. And at the same time, you also expressed some qualms about the role of bloggers versus professional fashion writers. Mm. Would you say that your opinion about this is still the same or has it kind of changed as things have leveled out a little bit? It has shifted. I mean, I remember when we were told we had to write in a clickbait style and as a journalist I was absolutely horrified at the idea of writing clickbait if it wasn't proper journalism. And then I actually love writing. I love actually writing those things now. I love the power of words and what you can do to create, you know, call to action, yeah. so to speak. Some of my qualms about influencers and bloggers I still have because just watching somebody who hasn't got a real interest in a subject get lots of free stuff is not necessarily good for people's psyches. Yeah, I think it can breed narcissism. Yeah, I do. I do. So some of my qualms I think are justified and I do also think, you know, that experts' expertise is incredibly important and that we should pay for proper mastheads. So in amongst all of that, did my ideas change? Essentially probably not that much. It's just that there is room for all of it. You mm. can actually just seek out what bit it is that floats your boat. I don't particularly want to follow influencers and, you know, teeth whiteners and, you know, it doesn't matter. But I can, fo- I can follow somebody else who's got some sort of, you know, wonderful archival records or some sort of historic idea about things, then great. There is room for everyone. You don't, there doesn't have to be one way. That's the good thing that's happened with the fashion world as well. It's become much more um, egalitarian. Yeah, quite accessible. Yeah, no, and, and everybody deserves to be part of it. Once the digital phone happened and, you know, once the digitisation, everybody was like, well, we don't, you don't really get to tell us what the trends are and what, the, you know, we can get in there and do it ourselves and play with it ourselves and everything. And that's entirely and utterly understandable and commendable. But I still think there's, some, there's a certain vacuousness about a lot of it being sold to 24-7 and there's shiny, happy images of things and, you know, not delving into things, pro- you know, with real knowledge and respect and understanding. I mean, I still don't understand by that. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I know. I think I'm quite similar in that I like the traditional respect for certain things like craftsmanship and yes all that. experience uh, you know mm. understanding you know asking questions being curious about things not just getting three free things and unwrapping them I think that's just and filming yourself unwrapping them I think I would be too uncomfortable anyway to do that so I'm glad I do what I do yeah I'm a terrible <laughs> influence it's not something that would ever come naturally to me you know you'd want to hope it was just because you're having a chat with someone you convince them of something but it is what it is 
because the old system is kind of struggling. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think the future of fashion writing is more the new platforms that are up and coming and online versus traditional press? Or do you think it sort of depends on the country as well? I don't think it's print so much anymore unless you have, you know, you're actually going to make less copies and they're going to be a better quality that you, in a way you're doing more beautiful coffee table sort of scenarios rather than, you know, monthly magazines. I don't know. It's definitely digital. It's definitely video led now. And I think we're, going to, we're already seeing it with Condé Nast is that global connection that they're going to actually speak to each other now so that the consumer can get a, a more global viewpoint of things. The areas will feed into a bigger remit, which I think will be really great as a consumer, hard to pull off as a company, but really great as a consumer. But you just don't know with fashion. It, it, that's the thing about it is fashion is highly un- predictable on one side and highly predict- unpredictable on the other. Who, who, yeah. it, let's think about the reaction to the pandemic. Did we want to stay in soft, nurturing clothes that made us feel cosy and made us feel safe and made, made us feel soothed? Or do we want to go out and dress like we're going to a surrealist ball? Or do we want to do, do two? You know, it, it's very emblematic of what's happening climate-wise, politically. So I'm not the savant that can tell you what happen, will happen in the fashion world. Uh, things are highly unpredictable at the moment. And for me, if I could only really talk about me personally, is I just keep going back to things that are quite classic and things that are soothing me, beautiful, simple pieces and artisanal pieces and having less things and having them more lovingly made and you know, rather than consume, consume, consume labels. I've gone the other way, I think, but that could be my age as well. No, I think there is a bit of a, a push for that. We've noticed even from the style of email that we receive where people do seem to be more keen on a life piece mm. that they get made for them to their size with their specific requests mm. more than just more and more sales of cheaper things. Mm. Not that our brand has ever been that, but you know what I mean? Like we've noticed a lot more people interested in solid gold during the pandemic, which for me was counterintuitive. But then at the same time, it kind of makes sense because you're investing in something that gives you stability in a sense in that gold is something that won't devalue. That's true. That's very true. I also think that it's a really good idea, probably post-pandemic as well, because we probably were all online a lot, is to try and have a break from social media a bit because we're just being inundated by so much, you Mm. know, particularly retailers struggle. I get that. But then, like, the, the, you know, the actual sponsored posts and stuff that you're getting hit with every day, it's too much. The world can't sustain it. I mean, I understand every fashion designer now says that, they're, you know, whether it's greenwashing or not, but like we're, we've got ethical practices and sustainable practices and whether it's upcycling or recycling or whatever it might be. But the sheer amount being just marketed at you is the issue. It's the volume yeah. of the stuff being marketed at you. And if we could all just take a breather, <laughs> because if you could, you know, it's just it's, it's really tricky times. But then, you know, on the other hand, I just think we've been through a lot and, if, it, if it, it's making you happy to invest in a really beautiful piece, then more power to you, really. Yeah, it's a very noisy time. Mm. So what things about fashion, life and Sydney are you looking forward to now that lockdown's over and summer is approaching? Well, I think you already have summer in Sydney, unlike us in Melbourne. Yeah. Well, I, I took up cold water swimming while it well, because the water was cold. I took up swimming while we were in lockdown. So I was going to the beach and swimming in cold water. That was fabulous. So I'll keep doing that. 
I'm just going to hang around, wait to get my booster. And I want to go to some countries that are just jammed with action. So I like Istanbul or India. I'm going in January to Istanbul if you feel like joining. Yeah. Okay. I'll join you there. And Marrakesh. And because I think it's like seeing the inside of your house for four months or for the poor Melburnians longer, I just want to go and see colour and movement and stuff, smell things and see things and taste things and and the art, art will be able to go into exhibitions and going back to the theatre will be good too because it's just about colour and movement, isn't it, that we were missing? Like I didn't want to go yeah. on one more walk. I just, you know, and people are like, you want to walk this afternoon? I was like, no, yeah. I had it. No, I don't want to go for a walk yeah. <laughs> with a takeaway <laughs> coffee. Yeah, I just I want a frenzy of action the minute I can get out. Yeah, I feel the same. Even though it's winter in Istanbul in January, I'm just keen to get there. and You know, like hot mint tea. and <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want to. I just want to see how it settles as the first intrepid travellers start going, and you know yeah. they are talking about you know another lo- uh, fourth wave in Europe and everything. So it's it's still a little iffy, isn't it? But I'll it I'll is. just get the booster and take my chances. Yeah, I think it would be probably a good idea. Yes. All right. Well, I will be in touch with you about meeting up in Sydney this week and. It's been great to see you and thanks for your time today. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you as usual. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kirsty on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. For more information on Kirsty, follow her on Twitter at Kirsty Clements and be sure to check out her new book, Why Did I Buy That? Available at Booktopia Books. Many of my collections are designed to be timeless pieces that share Kirsty's perspective that art, culture, film and music can be style inspiration and not just ever-changing fashion trends. Case in point, the resin rings and coin pendants in our last demi-fine collection, Shade of a Cypress. These pieces are born from historical design styles that have been present in society for millennia. Signet and seal adornments that are adapted for the modern day wearer. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast... I like to use a word said by Edward Said, the Palestinian academic, who uh, described the language as athletic. Arabic language is athletic. Until next time, stay curious.